Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. Thank you for listening, as always. If this is your first time listening, you can catch all of our previous episodes on iTunes or streaming at Bloomberg.com backslash podcasts. We previewed this week's What's the Big Deal in our last week's segment, which you should all listen to if you haven't yet, on being an energy M&A banker with Credit Suisse investment banker Osmar Abib. One of the deals he helped orchestrate was Halliburton's $28 billion takeover of Baker Hughes, or $35 billion, depending uh, on how you calculate it. We'll talk about that in a minute. We told you then there was a good chance we'd find out whether or not that deal collapsed by this week. And sure enough, Bloomberg reporter Matt Monks, who you heard last week along with Osmar, broke that story over the weekend that the Halliburton deal officially has been called off. Uh, and also, in a minute, joining us will be fan favorite Bloomberg M&A reporter Ed Hammond. But first, Matt joins us again to talk about what went wrong. Hi, Matt. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's start with uh, sort of the general details here. Maybe just lay it out for us. Why did Halliburton's deal for Baker Hughes collapse? So basically, uh, back in November 2014, Halliburton uh, put a squeeze on Baker Hughes to make this deal happen. It was a $35 billion deal. Uh, Baker Hughes actually didn't want to sell initially because they were reluctant to face the regulatory scrutiny of combining the number two and number three largest oil field services companies. The point of what I'm trying to say is, is from the beginning, we knew that there were substantial antitrust hurdles to this deal. They thought that they could overcome them by selling a bunch of assets, like $7 billion worth of assets. Uh, long story short, they go to the Department of Justice saying, here are the assets we're going to sell off to make this deal go through. And the Department of Justice said, no, that's not going to work. In fact, there's nothing that's going to work to make this deal be able to happen. And over the weekend, they finally pulled the plug on it because there was no way forward. And that's that $7 billion is the difference between the $35 billion and the $28 billion uh, number that I cited. So were there, I'm curious, from your reporting or just from sort of what was publicly out there, were there any other options kicked around that at least were explored to potentially try to keep some sort of deal alive? Let's put this in the realm of things that were speculated upon, of things that they could have done. Perhaps they could have reached an agreement whereas uh, instead of doing a whole company deal that Halliburton would you know agree to just buy maybe parts of Baker Hughes rather than the whole thing. Perhaps they could have tried to sell even more assets than they initially sold to see if that would fly with the Department of Justice. Uh, those were two options that people speculated that they may have explored, but apparently they just couldn't get there on any of them. So it's safe to say that this deal dying is not good news for Halliburton. Is that right? I mean, uh, the CEO, it's a setback. This was his baby. He made an aggressive play, and his credibility has taken a shot. That said, Halliburton is still in a great position. They've still got a relatively healthy balance sheet, and they still are basically a supermarket for oil field services products. I mean, they provide everything that oil and gas companies need to uh, drill for oil and gas. So from a market perspective and a financial perspective, they're still okay. But from a credibility perspective and from you know what the investors think of the company, it's clearly a setback. I have some numbers in front of me here. So Halliburton's about a $34 billion market cap company. The company recorded acquisition costs of $378 million on an after-tax basis in the first quarter of 2016, $79 million in the fourth quarter of 2015, and then another $45 million in interest expense related to the $7.5 billion in debt they issued to get this deal done in late 2015. So add up all those numbers. And then there's this huge breakup fee associated with this deal too, right? Uh, that's right. It's a 
three and a half billion dollar breakup fee, which is, uh, I believe, is it the second largest breakup fee of all time in an M and A transaction. With that big of a breakup fee, were Baker Hughes shareholders actually okay with this deal collapsing? That has been a sentiment that has been out there for a while when it became clear that this deal might not go through, that, well, at least Baker Hughes might still get paid. And you have to understand why is that breakup fee so big? That the breakup fee is so big, it reflects two things. It, it tells you that Halliburton striking this deal was so confident that they could get it through that they said, sure, we'll pay you $3.5 billion. And also, by agreeing to pay that much, it gave Baker Hughes the incentive to come to the table. So let's hang on that point for a little bit. Why was Halliburton so confident that they would get this deal through? I would assume it's because they felt that given the precedent on past antitrust deals that they had a leg to stand on, and uh, they probably saw the upsides more than the downsides in going through a deal. Um, in terms of the psychology of the CEO and why he decided to go through with this, I uh, can't tell you. I wasn't in the room at the time. But clearly, it is a case of where a company reaching big, what's the phrase when you, uh, you'd you rather um, ask for forgiveness than ask for permission? Right. It was a case where he would rather you know ask for forgiveness from the government rather than ask for permission to do it. And <laughs> it didn't yeah, go so well. Right, exactly. <laughs> this it didn't go so well. Right, right. That, then, then eventually, uh, not only did he have to say, I'm sorry, they had to pay $3.5 billion. Has there been any speculation that uh, the Halliburton's management is sort of on the hook uh, on this in terms of shareholder resentment that they made a big bet here, it didn't go through, and now they're, I mean, the, you know, the stock clearly is down today, and of course it's down, because if you add up all those numbers I just told you, even for a company that's, it's not going to die or anything because of this deal, but that's billions of dollars that are, you know, down the toilet. Let's just uh, put it this way. He has a lot to answer for, and how that's going to play out, I do not know. He's got investors that are clearly not happy, and I'm not in the boardroom, but we can imagine how uh, they might be feeling right well, now. Well, let's 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 ask this question: What does Halliburton do from here? Do they? Is there a chance that they go after anyone else? Here, well, so here's what they said today in reporting earnings. They're saying we're going to stay the course. Nothing has changed. We are going to, you know, maintain our position as a market leader uh, in oil field services. We're going to continue to provide a variety of products and services to oil and gas companies. Nothing is really changing in terms of who we are and what we're going to do. Uh, will they go out and make select acquisitions? I don't know. That's a, that's something that people are speculating about. And I know Baker Hughes on the other side has already said it plans to buy back stock with the three and a half billion dollars it's getting in that breakup fee from Halliburton. Any chance anyone goes after Baker Hughes? That's a open-ended question. Uh, there has been speculation that perhaps, rather than oil field services company buying them, which clearly is not going to happen right now, especially the way that the Department of Justice came out against this, perhaps a m more manufacturing-oriented company such as General Electric or uh, National Oil Varco might make a run at it. But we don't know yet. Uh, and the difference between what Halliburton said today and Baker Hughes said today, Baker Hughes basically came out of this saying, we're going to be a smaller, more focused company. We're, we're no longer going to provide oil field services in every basin you know, in the United States. We're going to focus just on two. We're going to get out of providing pressure pumping equipment. We're going to be uh, in less international markets. We're going to be a slimmer company going forward. All right. So over the past couple of years, I want to broaden this discussion out because now we have of deals that have not gone through that, that were announced, or at least let's say quasi-announced, and most of these were formally announced. I'm thinking of Allergan Pfizer, that was the biggest deal of last year. Comcast Time Warner Cable, Shire AbbVie, Norfolk Southern Canadian Pacific, which we've talked about several times in this show that just didn't go through, which was announced. Sprint T-Mobile, which was never formally announced, but the reporting on it was so broad and vast, and basically regulators said, uh, don't even bother. Those are 
multi, multi-billion dollar deals, all of them, none of them went through after they were either announced or, or, or on, the, on the verge of being announced. I want to talk a little bit more about why this is happening exactly, why there are these huge deals that are being announced, and then all the lawyers in the room and the management, et cetera, they do them all, and then they just they don't go through. And is there some theme that's uh, generic to all of these, or, or, or do you have to look at them on a case-by-case basis? So joining us for that broader perspective uh, is Ed Hammond, Bloomberg's other m a reporter to quote troy mcclure from the simpsons you may remember the three of us from such deal of the week episodes as episode seven uh when we discussed how we do our jobs hey ed welcome back thank you it's very nice to be here thank you thank you for joining us so look let me ask you ed, like what is going on here is there a th- broader theme or can we not make such sweeping generalizations from all those deals i just mentioned i think there is a broader theme it's what's hard to tell is if it's a theme that's being precipitated by the fact that we're just seeing a lot more very big deals being attempted at the moment or if and and certainly the merger arbitrage community would have you believe this the government and the sort of various collection of regulatory bodies in the US and in Europe are much tougher on big ticket M&A at the moment than they have been and obviously some industries that you mentioned particularly seem to come under scrutiny and you know, cable being an obvious one. I think we're seeing it in healthcare now, especially where there's a you know an inversion angle, um, and um, also in this sort of industry that straddles fig and healthcare with the um, with the big insurers in this company, where obviously they have come under massive scrutiny with the uh, the two very large deals announced in that space. Do you guys think this means that we don't see as many mega deals, in, in the, let's say at least in the next year? Uh, for the industries that I cover uh, and cover closely, energy and financial services, absolutely. In particular, insurance. I was just at an insurance panel today. Uh, they were talking uh, quite a bit about the new inversion rules and how that's put a chill on the prospect of doing big cross-border deals. In energy, I mean, we've seen the last two energy deals, uh, Halliburton, Baker Hughes, um, as well as uh, Energy Transfer and Williams, well, two of the last big ones. Uh, one of them's already collapsed. Energy Transfer Williams is a big question mark hanging over it, and that's not just about uh, antitrust stuff. Clearly, it is hard to do big deals, and uh, the negative regulatory headwinds is <laughs> it's, a, it's it's one of the big reasons that they are so difficult to get across the finish line. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think you know the, the only thing I would add is we saw a lot of these deals attempted. You know, a lot of the deals that are now being blown up, they were sort of initially launched maybe a year, some even as long as eighteen months ago. And I think what's happening is we saw you know this paucity of very big deals for a very long time obviously the confidence came back people tried them out and the regulatory environment has shown that you know maybe it's not going to be something that's going to be waved through so i think we are going to see a slowdown in the sort of in the very largest deals and a, and a sort of a, perhaps a good example of, of that trend and that trend starting to, to really take pace is united technologies and honeywell where you know they had looked behind the scenes at doing a deal and then united technology actually came back and said you know what we shouldn't even bother trying this because we've done some analysis and there's just no way the regulators are going to let this one pass do you know sort of who is ultimately at fault when a deal like this gets rejected and then a company has to pay a billion dollar multi-billion dollar breakup fee is it simply like well it's the ceo because the buck stops there or is it the lawyers that were brought in to advise was it the investment bankers who helped you know try to put the deal together is it all of them or even the shareholders who sort of lobby these companies to to go out and be more aggressive and be more on the front foot it's i, I think you would struggle to identify a sort of single individual or group of individuals who are responsible for attempting these things. I think we've gone through a sustained period now where, you know, sort of corporate ambition in regards to M&A has been rewarded. We saw this reflected in, you know, 
the fact that when companies were announcing acquisitions, their share prices were going up often by sort of double digit percentage point gains. And that is kind of unheard of in in in, in the way that the market reacts. Right, the buyer stock would on rise. the buyer yeah. so, on the yeah. buy side, the yeah. buy side was was bouncing. So, you know, you could you could ultimately say, I suppose, that you know, shareholders were driving this environment where deals and ambitious deals were being rewarded to such an extent that it was kind of beholden on, you know, executives to go out and attempt these things. On on the Halliburton Baker Hughes deal. How did regulators come forward and say that they were against this deal? Did they put out a statement? Was it reporting? Yeah, it was a 30-page lawsuit. 30-page lawsuit. And I read through it. It was granular, and it was harshly worded. And the thing that made it so interesting to me is uh, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on the regulatory stuff, but how they looked at how they defined markets. Uh, what is a market? Is an oil, is, is an oil field service company? And another oil field services company, a market, or is um, providing, uh, you know, a certain kind of pressure pumping services uh, considered a market. Uh, they looked at each and every single business line as a market, which is a real granular way to look at these types of deals. Uh, and they were looking at, you know, markets that are only, you know, $500 million markets and that this would create concentration in such a small market. The point of what I'm trying to say is uh, th th they came out and they, they evaluated this thing on a very granular level uh, by business line market and said, well, that's not going to work because, you know, you're going to own 40% of this, you know, $500 million market. And that's, that's a very, it's very hard to do deals when they're looking at so when, when regulators make it known that they're against a deal is that almost always a death knell for the deal i mean i'm i'm thinking like i guess us air american airlines went through even after regulators they had reached a settlement and that deal ended up going through uh, uh and then there's staples office depot mm. which is that's being litigated right now so i guess we're about to find out whether or not that deal will go through right yeah i think it's uh next week that the decision on that is due to come out i think yeah it, it it certainly the way smart people in the market so the smart sort of end of the um merger arbitrage community the way they seem to play this is you know if the government are coming out if particularly if obama is going out publicly and saying he doesn't like a certain deal pfizer allegan being the obvious example i think it's a you know you can take a fairly strong position that it's not going to go through because the government is going to do what it can to block the thing and i think there was you know there was this ambition and there was this confidence that these things could get done and i think you know that whether it's the treasury whether it's the um irs or, or other regulatory bodies they have shown a willingness to to essentially to overreach to block deals that they really don't like I don't think it necessarily has to be a death knell. I, I kind of think think of these things as a negotiation. You know, this is the government's position starting from no, this is not happening, and this is the company's position. They and they meet in the middle. Um, going back to the Halliburton deal, one of the reasons they did cite walking away was market conditions. Uh, from the time that they announced this deal up until today. Uh, we all know what's happened in the oil and gas industry. The economics of the deal actually have changed, and that was also a mitigating factor which made them decide to walk away. It wasn't just antitrust, and they tried to make the argument that it was more the economics given on market conditions. It's a fair point. Is this good for the economy when the government decides that these deals shouldn't go through? In other words, does the, does the market benefit from increased regulation from these things? Do, do we know? Is there any evidence that suggests... The government knows what it's doing, or is it simply a case-by-case -case basis and feels like some of these deals should go through and other ones don't? It's uh, The reason I ask is this. So when Comcast, Time Warner Cable broke up uh, or didn't happen because of regulatory pushback, uh, I thought there was a pretty thin legal argument on why that deal did not go through. Uh, and, I, and I actually thought that if Comcast litigated it, they may have won 
Comcast decided they didn't want to go through. They didn't want to chance it. They didn't want to risk sort of like the capital maybe that they'd built up with regulators. There's a lot of politics that goes on behind this stuff. Uh, Comcast spent a huge amount of money lobbying. And I think Comcast decided ultimately it didn't want to go down that road because they would lose a lot of the political capital if they litigated this thing. And then if they lost on top of that, they've really sort of, you know, uh, uh, blown all the sort of the political chips that they have accumulated over the years. Uh, but, you know, like now Charter's going to buy Time Warner Cable. Is the country better off with Charter buying Time Warner Cable than Comcast buying Time Warner Cable? Comcast has a better video interface than Charter does. I don't know that there's much difference between the service from Comcast and, and Charter, other than Comcast has more resources and potentially is more innovative. Uh, so I don't know. I, I, may, maybe uh, in your industries, the, the industries you cover, it's more clear cut. I don't know. I'm worried about talking about this stuff uh, and sounding like a socialist, of which I'm not. <laughs> but the question comes down to, you know, are big mergers good for the economy and good for the country? Um, I don't have a good answer for that. Why do companies do mergers? They do mergers because they're encountering stagnant growth and they need to spend money on something, right? Uh, uh, if they, you know, uh, can't spend money on buying another company, what else can they spend money on? Uh, buying back shares, uh, investing in new people organically. W the point of what I'm trying to say is, is it a good thing or a bad thing that you, you have hurdles to doing big mergers in general? I, I don't know. But if companies can't spend money buying other companies, they have to spend it on other things. And it, whether or not that's a good thing for the economy or not, I, I can't tell you. Is it, would it be a good thing for the economy if they decided to, you know, invest in more people and products and services? Maybe. Yeah, I think, I mean, I would look at it or try to look at it at least very much on a deal by deal basis. Like Pfizer Allegan is a, a good example where there was a demonstrable loss of tax dollars to the US Treasury if that company redomiciled outside the US. And therefore, you could say <clears throat> there's a very clear answer to is it going to benefit or um, disadvantage the US economy if that deal had gone through. I think for others, and, you know, take the health insurers, Humana Aetna and Signoranthem, both of them sort of. $40 billion plus deals, the uh, neither closed at the moment, and, and the spread's very, very wide on both. And I think the arguments being made is that, look, you, you know, if you have an industry where you have five companies and you go to three companies, how can it possibly be beneficial to the consumer? Because they are deprived of, you know, two fifths of their current choice. Um, and the insurers, for their part, will make the argument that, well, hold on, if we do this, we will, you know, there'll be so much cost saving, etc., that we will be able to actually, like, you know, pass some of those savings down to the consumer, make health insurance, which is obviously a big spend for a lot of people in this country, make it considerably cheaper. Um, but what's interesting is how few of these things are actually being litigated. You mentioned Office Depot Staples. That's like a very rare example where it makes it all the way along. Most of the time, these companies will just say, you know what, you're going to make it so difficult. Actually, Pfizer elegant. It didn't get litigated. The government just showed a willingness to do what it had to do, including kind of changing the rules halfway through the game um, to make the deal like so unsavory for them that they wouldn't pursue it. Right. One deal we didn't talk about was AT&T T-Mobile, which had the biggest breakup fee of all time, uh, which is the only one now that tops Halliburton Baker Hughes. Uh, and AT&T decided not to litigate that and instead pay $6 billion breakup fee plus Spectrum um, to T-Mobile rather than litigating that. So it came at a huge cost. Maybe the answer to my question is it's it's often very difficult to say, and it's a very difficult challenge from the regulator standpoint. One deal that comes to mind was a deal that we talked about on one of the early episodes of this podcast uh, with Frank Aquila, who said flat out regulators made a mistake when they did not allow... Uh, Dish Network and DirecTV to come together because what has happened since then 
is that the market for pay television has changed. So when they blocked that deal in 2002, they looked at these two satellite TV players coming together and said, well, it's two to one. And the, and the only competition is cable TV. So that's the market. But of course, what's happened 10 years later? Everybody watches video on their phones. And now the video market is huge. YouTube is a video player. Netflix is a video player. Uh, so, so the market has gotten so much bigger that you now look at AT&T, or, or excuse me, DirecTV and Dish coming together, and you're like, well, that's just, I mean, the, the video market's huge. Of course that they should be able to do that. Satellite TV's dying. It's the only way that these two companies can survive, maybe, is by coming together. Now, again, I, that's a bit of a mixed bag, because you could also argue that by not letting those companies together, Frank's argument was if you had let them come together, it would have increased video innovation, and we would be further along today. Uh, than we are by keeping them separate. The other argument is, well, they competed against each other. Dish maintained its status as the low-cost pay TV provider, uh, and and perhaps if they had come together, then uh, there wouldn't have been that player out there charging thirty bucks a month for pay TV. There only would have been Direct TV, which would have charged you ninety dollars a month. So therefore, it was a good decision from regulators. So I think maybe, you know, it purely depends on where you're coming from on these things. And it's so specific to each industry because no one knows what the kind of disrupting force in a particular industry is going to be. We did in the retail in the Staples Office Depot. This deal was attempted, or a similar deal was attempted a very long time ago. They blocked it because they said it would. There was no, you know, no one else who could do this. Now you have Amazon. You know, so the arguments, the whole landscape of that industry has shifted so fundamentally in the kind of 15 or 20 years since it was last attempted that it's um, it's it, it, the legal arguments for not letting it through now are, are sort of night and day different. Ed Hammond and Matt Monks, fellow M&A reporters here at Bloomberg, thank you very much Thanks for, for having us. Thanks. That's it for this episode of Deal of the Week. Hope you enjoyed it. You can expect more Bloomberg reporters and M&A professionals who are doing deals real time. And until then, find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Google Play, or whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Also, take a minute to rate and review the show while you're there. And follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949. Ed Hammond is at Ed Hammond Ed NY. And Matt Monks at Matt Monks123. See you next week. <laughs>